Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. I'm Neil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. My guest on this episode is Seth Goldman, founder of Eat the Change, a new platform to inform and empower consumers to make dietary choices aligned with their concerns around climate and health. Seth is also the co-founder of Plant Burger, Honest Tea, and chair of the board of Beyond Meat. Seth and I kick off this conversation talking about recent news connected to Beyond Meat, as well as the launch of Seth's new brand and platform, Eat the Change. We then expand into a pretty broad conversation about how best to transform our current food system. Starting with Seth's theory of change, the tensions between building more decentralized local food economies versus centralized global food supply chains. We get into whether plant-based foods can scale in a sustainable way and bring about meaningful change while operating within the constructs of an industrialized food system. We also chat about technology innovation in food and the benefits and pitfalls of making decisions driven by efficiency and scale. Seth also shares his thoughts on the effectiveness of market solutions as opposed to policy solutions to bring about change in the food system, as well as his thoughts on cultured or cell-based meats and why he thinks cell-based meat companies have several challenges to overcome before they can be commercially successful. Finally, we discuss Beyond Meat's commitment to innovation and their efforts to keep improving on products and make them nutritionally superior without compromising on taste. We tackle some big and complicated issues in this conversation, and I really appreciate Seth indulging me and my curiosities. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Seth Goldman, thank you so much for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Great to be with you, Neil. 
So, Seth, I feel like we always end up talking right after some big news or something <laughs> momentous has happened uh, in the food industry, more specifically with Beyond Meat. Um, and the last time we spoke, just for some context, uh, it was an episode that was released on the podcast, was right after the IPO. Um, and here we are now in uh, the first day of March, actually, recording it, right a week after or less than a week after Beyond just announced this uh, strategic partnership uh, with McDonald's and Yum! Brands. Why don't we kick off by just telling me more about what that partnership is all, all about and how does it fit within the context of what Beyond is aiming to do in the next few years? Sure. And, and you know, it's not hard to speak after <clears throat> big news these days in the food industry because so much is happening and so much is changing. And for me, that that's a really exciting moment. So much needed to happen to change our food system. And so these big announcements you're referencing are great signs that change is really happening. And so, uh, as, as you know, obviously, the Yum! Brands, which includes KFC, Pizza Hut and Taco Bell, um, and then, of course, McDonald's are some of the largest restaurant. Well, are, they are really together the largest restaurant chains in the world. And both of them announced intention to launch products formulated by Beyond Meat uh, over the coming year and years uh, in both in the U.S. as well as internationally. And so those have the potential to um, expand the availability uh, and demand for plant-based foods in a way that really hasn't happened before. So for our goal of democratizing plant-based protein, you're just really exciting. Yeah, undoubtedly. And so I guess the, the big question is, how soon are we going to see uh, a plant-based <laughs> burger at a McDonald's uh, with Beyond Meat in it? Well, you're already, um, you know, already McDonald's in Sweden and Denmark already do have uh, the Beyond Burger as an ingredient in their, what's called the McPlant uh, burger. And then you'll see that expand to other parts of the world. And I think it's just going to be a matter of, of you know, distribution and production, manufacturing, and, it's, and which regions are you know, sort of step up to, to, to get involved uh, at a different pace. So it's exciting. Uh, it's already underway. And of course, with respect to uh, Pizza Hut, the Beyond uh, Meat is already on the menu. I've had the, the, the Beyond uh, Sausage on a pizza. That's fantastic. Yeah, and uh, I must ask about the other big announcement with with Pepsi more recently. Um, tell us a little bit more about that, and and what can we anticipate um, to come out of that partnership, uh, which I believe is called the Planet Partnership. Yeah, very exciting because um, we have seen at Beyond Meat that our science continues to build on itself. The more we know about being able to work with proteins from plants. Obviously, our, our charter is to um, work with meat analogs. And so we've been doing that. Um, and uh, you, you've seen the results. We see the potential to go into adjacent categories, but we also recognize we have to have some focus. On the, you know, the, um, and so we have to focus on meat analogs. But if we had a partner who could help us both from a distribution, sales, and R&D perspective, you know, take some of the additional adjacent opportunities. Um, that would be a fun way to work and explore and expand both the beyond brand, but also expand the science and the impact. And, you know, my experience going back to my Honest Tea days was that we had a great brand at Honest Tea. We needed a partner like Coca-Cola to scale the distribution. And so to, to partner with, you know, Pepsi, which is both 
I, I think probably the world's largest snack distributor through the Frito-Lay distribution channel. And then obviously one of the largest beverage distributors um, gives the potential to really scale some adjacent opportunities to, to meet. And so we'll um, work closely to, to scale the R&D and then look into you know, where we can take those snacking and, and possibly beverage extensions. Very exciting. Well, I, I I told you before we got started when I reached out to you that this this conversation was not going to be about Beyond Meat. I'm um, but I'm glad we we did touch on some big uh, items that are in the news, and we haven't even it's not even five minutes in, so uh, <laughs> so we can move on. And I and I'm excited actually because the real reason I I wanted you on um, today uh, is that I've been obviously following your work over the years, and and I've seen in the last. Uh, year or so, you've started to expand your focus um, beyond, you know, pun intended, beyond beyond meat at the moment, uh, and more specifically into this new initiative you've launched called Eat the Change. Um, why don't we start there? Tell me more about why did you launch Eat the Change and what is it? Sure, sure. Well, I continue to love the work and the impact of Beyond Meat, and I am chair of the board. But I, as an entrepreneur, always love to take on new challenges and scale new ideas and enterprises. And so I wanted to think about, okay, we see what the impact of Beyond Meat can do in the center of the plate, you know, for the meat occasion. But there's other food occasions where people eat um, that I'd also love to see addressed. Because what you really want to do when you are really trying to make a full movement happen is you have to come at it from all angles. And so meat is critical. It is what we call the center of the plate. But every time, every opportunity people eat is an opportunity to help them think about how to change their behavior toward a more planet-friendly behavior. So um, we wanted to, we saw um, snacking as a great example of a place where there's an opportunity to provide more planet-friendly snacks. And so I started to think around what would be the right product, the right occasion. I also knew, you know, this was this, all this was going on just about a year ago. And of course, you know, a year ago, the world was coming under this pandemic. So I knew it wasn't the right time to launch anything, really. And the stores were being besieged by, you know, people looking for toilet paper, the buyers were not focused on, oh, what's a new product I can bring out. And so rather than launch a brand last year, I actually worked with my wife, and we said, let's Let's make sure we're supporting organizations, especially as, as the world goes into sort of a, you know, a little bit of a panic mode and pockets or wallets get tightened. Let's think about how we can support the organizations that are also doing this work around planet-friendly diets and democratizing them. And so rather than launch a brand in 2020, let's, let's support these organizations. And we created a platform, which we call Eat the Change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and its impact. So we um, are committed to donating a million dollars over three years to nonprofits that are helping spread awareness and democratizing planet-friendly diets. And so that was the first step we took. And as we started to do that, we also recognized, okay, well, what are the core principles around that? Obviously, it's, it's you know, moving people away from animal-based products, but there's other principles around the way products are grown. So can we support organic can we address food waste? Can we address um, uh, not, um, short, short shelf life of foods? And at the same time, uh, I think I've told you I'm involved with this restaurant chain we're building called Plant Burger. And um, I arranged for the Plant Burger chefs to go visit with 
uh, a mushroom farm that I've known, an organic mushroom farm that I've known for a long time. And as we were out there visiting with these farmers, um, I started to get ideas around, uh, recognize what an incredible food mushroom is, the mushroom is in terms of being a sustainable snack. It feeds on waste, it you know, literally grows in compost. Um, and I also learned there's lots of mushrooms that don't make it to market. So they are, they can be lost um, or wasted, not, not reach their full opportunity. And so um, it was that after that trip to the mushroom farm that I realized we could also build a brand called Eat the Change. And of course the, the chef, the, the lead executive chef for Plant Burger is Spike Mendelson. And he's a, both a good friend, but also a really creative chef. And so uh, that's when I realized, let's, let's find what else we can do with mushrooms. Because at the restaurant, we were using mushrooms. First, we were using mushrooms as a, a substitute for bacon, but we found a wonderful variety of the oyster mushroom. It was just the fruiting body that was actually being thrown into compost. And I said, well, that, that could be a great chicken substitute. And we do have a product, which we call the crispy chicken fungi made of the oyster mushroom. Uh, and as we started to play, play with that more, we realized we could take mushrooms and make it into a, a jerky. And so that's the first product line we launched with Eat the Change. But Eat the Change as a brand is similar to Eat the Change, the impact program. But with Eat the Change, the brand, we're focused on uh, planet-based food. We can't call it plant-based because, of course, the mushroom isn't a plant. The mushroom <laughs> is its own, its own kingdom. Uh, we call it planet-based food. And then we'll you know, look for products where there are opportunities where there's food waste, but also where we can support biodiversity. Mm. And this is an interesting concept. We, we um, realize there's six crops that represent 57% of all agricultural output. And we said, well, let's leave all of those out because if we really want to support, a, you know, avoid monocultures and support more biodiversity, then we need to commit to that in our recipes. And uh, initially that was a little intimidating for Spike. He said, well, you're talking about leaving out corn, soy, wheat, sugar, cane, uh, you know, potatoes, rice. These are all, a lot of staples and a lot of ingredients. And he said, oh, you know what? It's like a, a top chef challenge. And of course, Spike was on top chef. It's just, you know, here's what's in your basket. And um, so, so those were the, that's one of the principles as well. That's, that's interesting, really. And so I guess um, there's so, so many different questions I can, I can come up with here. But um, I, I think the first one I have is more specifically around uh, was Eat the Change something that you s decided to pursue after your exploration for ingredients in Planet Burger or the kind of products that you were looking or the things you were testing out there? And as a result of which you 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 felt like there was a bigger opportunity because it seems like yeah. you've you've got this perfect you know testing ground sandbox with with a with a, with a restaurant right and then yeah. after and then you can see what works and launch those products yeah no plant burger came first for sure it's and plant burger fact, I called it planet yeah, burger that's fine well you can call it planet burger <laughs> you can call it plant burger or plenty burger it's just P L N T burger mm -hmm. is the way we phrase it so um, that's all all of those work. Um, actually, the phrase "eat the change" came out of Plant Burger. My uh, son Jonah is is running the marketing for Plant Burger, and he came up with the phrase "eat the change you wish to see in the world." And that was such a wonderful encapsulation of of what we were trying to do with Plant Burger. Uh, but obviously, it's it's also an encapsulation of what we're trying to do with Eat the Change. And, and it really even even well, you know, as you talk about a planet friendly, you know, eat, you know in a planet friendly way, that's a wonderful call to action. And of course it's intended to be an echo of the phrase attributed to Gandhi, which really the, the key message of that phrase, even though Gandhi actually didn't say those words exactly, <laughs> be the change you wish to see in the world. 
It's a recognition and an acceptance that the individual choices we make are our responsibility. And it's, and it's basically owning that decision. It's, it's a statement of, you know, if it's going to change, I need to make it happen. Yeah, it has a great ring to it. And, you know, with, with Eat for the Planet being the name of this podcast, obviously, it's very in sync with whatever you're saying at the moment. So uh, it, it, let's talk about Eat the Change in terms of the kinds. Uh, we can talk about the jerky because that's that sounds really interesting. And the product is now out in the market. But do you see that as being the philosophy you're going to uh, use to launch new products in this snack category? Um, and uh, and if so, what are those principles that you're going to keep in mind yeah. uh, going forward? Yes. So so March 1st is actually our first official launch day. So we are now starting to appear in stores. And over the next few weeks, we'll be in, in you know uh, probably around a thousand stores around the country. So and of course, online. Uh, and the jerky was a wonderful place to start. It's certainly not going to be the end point, but it represents a great place to start because number one, it's a food that is nutrient dense. Um, well, even before that, it's a food that tastes delicious. It can, you know, that, that had to come first. And, and I've been around this, this whole movement so long and I've seen, and frankly, even in some cases, been part of brands that launch where the product doesn't taste so good. You, 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 know, you, you put so much emphasis on the mission you don't, you often overlook the, the taste part. And I now, you know, can confidently say when we launched Eat the Change, the phrase we chose was chef crafted, planet based. Mm-hmm. We wanted every product to taste delicious. And that was something we really had to be a core principle. And so that's why Spike is a wonderful co-founder uh, because he is a chef and he's bringing that, that mindset to it. Um, and so, uh, this the mushrooms are great because they're such a, a blank canvas. You can put so much flavor into them uh, and they absorb it. And they also um, can be smoked in a way with wood that just magical kind of taste uh, feeling. But they also fit well because um, they are um, in they were, the, the mushrooms we're using would basically be cast offs. They would they're undersized or oversized or even the stems of the mushrooms that wouldn't make it to the store shelf. And we're able to take them, smoke them, and um, make them taste delicious. So for us, that works really well. But I expect as we expand um, to other snacking occasions and to other snacking audiences, we will use other ingredients that, that fit that profile, a lot of the same characteristics. You mentioned ETC Impact or Eat the Change Impact and in its launch uh, last year. Yeah. Uh, and you brought up how it's important as we try to solve this or we try to try to come up with solutions to the challenges we're facing with our food food system and the looming threat of climate change um which is here and we're going to continue to feel its impacts um what are your criteria for uh, grants for, through ETC Impact? Because mm-hmm. it, it, I, I looked at through some of the organizations you funded in the last year. It seems like it, it sort of broadens the net of who is included as part of this um, effort to build a more sustainable movement, not just in terms of the the people involved, but also the tactics. Um, sure. Because you know, if you look at say Beyond Meat or, for that matter, even Eat the Change. Um, it's th- those those are CPG brands that are most likely built on a model of uh, of, of economies of scale. You're going you're going to try to 
produce and distribute the products to as many people as possible to make it mo- very accessible. On the other hand, a lot of the smaller nonprofits that are have been the recipients of your grants, uh, a lot of them are working, not all of them, but many of them seem to be working more at a local level mm-hmm. with things like uh, farming and urban farming. W- what's your... You know, yeah. this leads into a broader question, which might dominate the rest of our conversation. But what's your uh, what's your theory around why your theory of change? Yeah, your yeah. theory of change, yeah. exactly. Yeah, no, it's a great question. I well, look, uh, a movement really has to come from all perspectives, all sizes, all scales, and so there are some organizations uh, that are thinking on a national level. And so, a great example is Tracy McCorder's. 10,000 black vegan women. Um, her handle, her handle, by the way, is by any greens necessary. <laughs> um, and so thinking about it, and she did, she, she, her target was to have 10,000 black women commit to going vegan and she hit over 14,000. So um, now she's thinking about, okay, is the next target a hundred thousand, a million, whatever. And so we said, well, whatever it is, we want to support that effort because it's, it's raising awareness and it's thinking on a national platform. And then at the same time, there's just small, community-based farms that work in their communities to, to help people access and experience these foods. And you, you really need to approach people in both dimensions. Of course, we're not going to be able to reach every single community-based farm, but the, one, the models we think are more promising, where there's deeper engagement, where the community is really leading the effort, those are the ones where we uh, tried to fund and, and we, all around the country, everywhere from Louisiana to Maine to <clears throat> the West Coast, we've you know, found wonderful organizations. So we do have to come at it from, from all angles. And, and the theory of change on these things is, uh, and that's what it takes, that you can go, what I'm looking at the whole organic movement, um, and it's you know, a lot of similarities with, with Beyond Meat, where um, you know, I've been involved in different organ, organic um, nonprofits and at the same time, you know, when we launched Honest Kids, that organic kids drink inside McDonald's, that was a huge scaling of organic distribution. So if you only get the distribution, but you don't raise the awareness, you may not get the same impact. Um, so you really need the for-profit, the nonprofit, and uh, other partners to, to, to get engaged in this effort. Yeah, I find this issue of uh, the tension between global versus local uh know, centralized, um, globalized food supply chains versus more uh, resilient local economies have, you know, has always been a, uh, seems to be two groups that are don't necessarily agree on a lot of things. And it's become even more uh, apparent in the last one year with the pandemic and you know, at least temporary disruptions to our food supply chains. Yeah. Um, a lot of people have been placing a lot more emphasis on the need to uh, figure out how we can support more local economies versus uh, more of a globalized food system. So where do you, and again, I guess you probably, I guess we need both is my quick we answer. We need all of it. We need all of it. We're in such a bad spot, uh, both climate-wise, diet-wise, we need everybody, and, and I have zero interest in, in you know, if I'm in a forum or something debating whose work is more important. It's all important, you know. And so, a great example is you can look at the work of PETA over, the, you know, people for the ethical treatment of animals over the past even decades, where they were trying to get people to have more vegan diets and very, I would say, admirable work. But I am willing to wager their work has gotten much easier. Mm-hmm. 
the past few years, or their their uh, the work, their impact has has become more profound now that these options are available. Because ten years ago, when you were telling people to try a vegan diet, and they tried, and they'd have a veggie burger, and they say. Eh. <laughs> that's not good enough. Like I want my juicy meat, you know, um, that's just how people responded today when they hear that message and they say, okay, well, I'll try a Beyond Burger or even, you know, a few, uh, sometime from now, I'll go to McDonald's and try a Beyond Burger. Oh, well, oh, that's good. That's really good. And I don't feel that trade-off. So, so all of this work is needed, uh, both the campaigns to raise awareness, the companies to create the options, the partners, the supermarkets to put these plant-based um, products in a way that's visible and available, you know, not just in that organic niche aisle, but really in the center of the store where people can see it or the delivery services, the restaurants, everybody needs to um, participate in this to really make it, uh, to give this change uh, momentum. Yeah. I and mean, it's often, you can look at it on, depends on which side you end up sitting on, assuming you are sitting on a certain side, you can on one hand, you have uh, the proponents of uh, regenerative agriculture and more local economies, the, the focus on, on rebuilding our soil. Uh, mm-hmm. And they, and, and I'm not saying one is right or wrong, but I, I, I do think each has a unique perspective. One, I, I think the smaller Regen Act folks look at some of the developments in recent years in the food system, especially the trend towards more plant-based eating as not necessarily a, a good thing because they often say the, the 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 foods that people are eating will now lead to the development of new monocultures. And so, you know, if you're a part of this monolithic system and you are yeah. offering a better solution, and if that does scale up, do you end up now with unintended consequences of like an over-reliance on, you know, on mushrooms or, or peas. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a great thing. So, so based on, you know, what we just as an, looking at Eat the Change. So first of all, committing to organic, I think is a, is a key pillar. But what I said around this biodiversity, you know, if, if, if right now six crops represent 57% of our agriculture, mm-hmm. if we can shift that, if 10 crops re- represent 57, that's a better step. And if 20 crops represent 50%, the whole point is we, we're not, we, no one is interested in getting rid of crops entirely, but we just need to diversify the base and, and both from a, a health perspective, but the, the, the threat that monocultures play, the risk we're at as a planet, if 57% of our diet is based on six crops and you get a, a climate shock or a disease that kills off those crops, then we're at risk as well. So um, the, there are ways to support biodiversity, to support regenerative agriculture, and at the same time, build a, a scalable business, which is you know, obviously what we're trying to do with Eat the Change. Do you see that eventually perhaps the goal, um, without making too much of an assumption, so you correct me if I'm wrong here, but the goal is to perhaps source ingredients locally in the markets where these products are being offered, obviously in a perfect world, and it's going to take a while till we get there. Um, what are your thoughts on, on the, as, especially as certain products and brands globalize uh, yeah. the tension of, of having to be everywhere, but then not be too reliant on certain sources for those ingredients. You know, where it makes sense, just going back to my experience in the tea days, as much as um, it's a quaint idea to think we should be buying tea from North America, if we're going to sell it in North America, tea doesn't grow well. 
in North America. So we have to think about what's the climate relevant context for a plant. And, and you know, when tea leaves grow best in volcanic soil and you know at high altitude, that's that's not means it doesn't grow in North America. So, you know, I think with Eat the Change, we are looking certainly at crops that we can source on this continent. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I think even the same with Beyond Meat, we talk about. Of course, we started with peas because it was a scaled crop, but we will um, look as we grow about what our potential to, to use indigenous crops, you know, where, wherever country we're operating in. That's, that's both from a cost perspective and a resource uh, perspective, you know, the most efficient way to do it. But it's just a question of scaling. And the amazing thing about mushrooms, by the way, is they really are not climate dependent. They're all grown indoors, all, all, all agriculture, all CPG mushrooms are all, you know, used, they can be buy in the store grown indoors. And so there's nothing about, uh, now our, our mushrooms happen to come from Pennsylvania, um, Kennett Square, Pennsylvania, which is the, where 61% of all mushrooms grow, grown and consumed in the U.S. are grown. But there's nothing about that climate that make it a special place. It's the talent, the, the, the knowledge and the infrastructure for growing mushrooms uh, that dictates where they're grown. So uh, that also is an, an interesting dimension about mushrooms, just how versatile mm-hmm. um, they are. So the choice of ingredient then becomes so important. And the reason I'm even going uh, in this direction and, and sort of bringing up these issues is because I, I see some of that in the work that you're doing in Eat the Change. It's, and, it's, and maybe all of it is not clear now, but I, I see an effort being made to be very mindful about the ingredient choices. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and plus this, uh, with the ETC impact, the ability to almost find a way to create a, a win-win for, for both sides, right? Because again, it, it's not either you this or that, it's usually both needed. And if you can actually combine it in unique ways where small farmers uh, can thrive and be given incentives to actually uh, protect their local ecosystems and, and take care of the soil health, but also in a sustainable way, uh, and an equitable way supply ingredients to a company mm. that can then find a way to scale it. Now that's now that's a world we want to live in, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I don't I don't anticipate that our nonprofit partners will. Their main goal is to supply the crops they can feed their local communities for, mm-hmm. um, and I don't anticipate them being able to to supply um, eat the change any at least not anytime soon. So there's no intentional, so even so. I guess in, you may at least stumble upon some ideas that you can then for sure, uh, yeah, or recipes, mm-hmm. recipes and things like that. But no, the main goal there really is just to promote the movement. It's it, there's not a I can't say there's a business objective except um, to say this is what we stand for, and these are the partners we believe in. And, and like I said, to, to really build a movement, you need people coming at it from all sides, and of course a recognition, which I know is something you, you you've discussed quite a bit, a recognition that these kind of diets are often not available in, in economically disadvantaged communities. And so, and the irony, of course, is that plant-based diets are economically more feasible than, uh, you know, animal-based diet. They're just, they, they, they can be cheaper. So how do we help a raise awareness in communities of need that these diets are both um, better for the planet, better for the people consuming the products, as well as an economically um, reasonable and affordable option. Yeah. I, I'm i going to ask you about your thoughts on technology, which is, I know, it's a tough uh, and a broad term to be using in the first place, because 
it really depends what you're what we're referring to, right? But uh, generally, in the last few years, technology has emerged. Um, it's nothing new. It's always been one of the solutions proposed to how to improve on our problems with our food system. But technology has emerged in, in multiple ways, and it can be everything from robotics or data gathering at the farm level, ingredient levels, ingredient sourcing, through the potential of blockchain technology to build ultimate transparency in the food system. Or in the case of products, of course, whether it's, it's, it's plant-based jerky or snacks or burgers, um, when, when you work on products or initiatives or when anyone listening to this podcast, many of whom are entrepreneurs themselves, are working on new technology to develop uh, a better product, what should they be keeping in mind that doesn't then lead to unintended consequences? Like mm-hmm. if, you had a, if you had a checklist that you had to run through these decisions so that you, we don't end up in a place 10, 15, 20 years down the line where we look back and uh, end up feeling like we could have done this slightly differently. And, and the reason I ask that question is, for the most part, if you look at the food system today, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, people who intended it to be this bad. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's a yes, series of no. unintended consequences, all Absolutely. driven by the need for efficiency, the need for scale, the need for globalization. Yeah. One of my yeah. favorite books is actually uh, kind of traces the story of Tyson Foods and and mm-hmm. how they emerged as this juggernaut in the U.S. And you can't help but slightly be shocked by the whole thing, but also just in awe of, of their ability to make things happen within the system that we have in this country. So Yeah. Here's a great example of that. So when I was with Honest Tea, um, you know, there was this whole debate around GMO labeling, uh, which Honesty was obviously in favor of. And it was difficult because Coca-Cola was um, resisting those efforts. And I remember being in a meeting with a senior executive at Coca-Cola. And he was saying, look, we didn't ask for GMO uh, ingredients because the, the high fructose corn syrup, you know, had, had that. And he says, and, and, and so he kind of felt like they were put in this very difficult position, but it wasn't something they had asked for. And, and I, I didn't say it to him, I was, I was surprised by the comment. And I realized what they had asked for was a, a low priced product. Mm-hmm. And the outgrowth of that was that, you know, some corn manufacturers or the corn, high fructose corn syrup manufacturers uh, said, well, we need cheaper corn. And if we need cheaper corn, we need a crop that can be, you know, um, we could use pesticide, pesticide, you know, uh, Roundup ready. And that's a GMO process. And that's how they got there. And so I think what I would tell people to do is create your guardrails from the start. What do you stand for? And, and this is what we've done at Eat the Change. We have these uh, economic, not we call them our planet-based commitments. And we put them on our package and say, this is what we're going to stand for from the beginning. And then also, um, so, so I feel, and we did that at Honesty too, by the way. You know, if you, if we, if you go to the Honesty website, our original business plan is still on there. And um, we, we talk about our aspirations for impact and social responsibility. And so I think starting with those principles will help you uh, steer. They'll help you understand, they'll guide your decisions. And so um, if you had been, if going back to Coca-Cola at the time had sort of said, here's what we were going to 
you know, looked for in our ingredients and, and made a clear uh, statement about that, you wouldn't have seen that kind of ingredient reach them uh, without them having the chance to think about it. They just hadn't, they just hadn't thought about it. And, and so that's why they ended up there. And, and so I, I feel more confident um, about that, and I, uh, both for, for Beyond Meat as well as for Eat the Change. Yeah. And I think it's pro- probably a, a consequence of the age we're living in where at least we are, we can look back at the last 70, 80, 90 years and the missteps we've made along the way and, and hopefully learn from some of that history to not, not repeat them. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, it, technology, is all, technology is always an interesting topic to bring up because we, we need it. We need more of it. It's just how you deploy it and, and how mm-hmm. it's, how it's, um, and how you sort of adjust for its unintended consequences, because there will be some, and we just have to be able to uh, make a sort of figure out what trade-offs we can live with and what we can, what we want to completely avoid. So, you know, one more question on tech in general: what what kind of technology would you like to see in the food system that you currently think is sorely missing? If that's if you had a top mm-hmm. three or even just one. Uh, new thing that you think could really change the game when it comes to food manufacturing or distribution? Well, that's interesting. Um, well, I do think there's certain product spaces that are, you know, where there's gaps. Like, mm-hmm. I think the example of like cheese still isn't, plant-based cheese isn't yet, um, there, there's not yet a uh, beyond cheese, <laughs> you know, where, where there's a beyond meat. I, I think there's some, there's some cheeses out there, but they could still stand to continue to improve. Um, I wonder if there is a blockchain around um, organic sourcing and, and um, fair trade sourcing that would there may be an opportunity for the consumer to learn more. I don't have that all figured out yet, but I, um, I've, I've been through a few different restaurant experiences where they'll say everything's organic. And of course we have no way to really know that because it's not in a package. We don't know that the, the inspection process has happened. Um, so I wonder if that's something that might make sense at some point. Yeah. And, and in, I know obviously you're a proponent of market solutions as the most effective and um, sort of uh, the fastest way to bring about change in the food system. And, and I mm-hmm. don't disagree at all. Um, but we must also acknowledge we currently are operating under a, a food system that from a policy standpoint is 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 pretty antiquated um you know yeah. and I'm, it's it's very real when you compare the price of plant-based meat to conventional beef for example um but you analyze whether it's dairy or, or or eggs or any 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 food product that is relying on commodity crops today is made artificially is sold at a price that's artificially low because the, the costs are external, externalized through subsidies mm-hmm. um, and the negative impacts are just not accounted for. And really, it's our tax dollars that are paying for it. So how do you, how do you build market share? How do you um, achieve these goals of, of, of getting people to change their diet so at least transition towards more planet-friendly food, foods when some of these market forces, some of these policy stru- frameworks are working against you? Where... For those that can make the choice, like I, I am, I can say I'm privileged enough to to make a choice. I can walk mm-hmm. into a store and choose to eat the plant based version, even if it costs a few dollars more. We have to acknowledge there's a lot of people in this country and around the world who don't have that choice. 
how do we, yeah. not just from a competitive standpoint, because that's one angle to look at it, but a, a way to capture market share, but also from a, can we change the system fast enough to avert a climate crisis? Can we do it without policy change? Yeah, I believe we can. And I believe what's happening is are the right steps. So it, it's all about scale. And so when you talk about a player like McDonald's or Yum! Brands, those are about scale. And I, I know that there's a, a, an aspiration from both sides of the uh, approaching these opportunities to make sure the pricing here is accessible. Uh, I was so proud when we launched Honest Kids and McDonald's, we were able to bring an organic drink and put it on the menu without any uptick in price. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm comfortable saying when you put something on the menu at McDonald's uh, at the price it's already, you know, that the offering is, that's how you democratize something and make it available. And of course, gain scale, it becomes a self-fulfilling thing when you see that kind of volume. And just to give you a sense of it, Honest Kids at um, McDonald's in the first year, we sold over um, 200 million units. Um, and I know that number because we were, we were also, um, each unit we sold had about 45 calories less than the non-organic drink we had been, we replaced. So we helped remove over a billion calories from the American diet in that first year. And so um, I think as you look at launching in these massive chains, that will help give us the kind of volume to help us bring the price, keep the pricing, well, bring, bring the pricing down. Um, it's just, so that's what's been missing in this movement. Um, and and uh, I certainly know having been on the startup side, you know, when startups, it just costs more to bring these products to market when you're not buying at scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm glad to say that, uh, you know, the mushroom jerky we're launching is priced at an, a comparable price point to animal-based jerky. Now, of course, uh, it costs less t- to grow mushrooms than it does to slaughter and, and raise an animal from, from the inputs perspective. Mm-hmm. But like you say, because those industries are so much more developed, so much more scaled, uh, I know the meat guys have better margins yeah. than us mushroom guys right now. But I'm confident as we build this up, we'll get to the place where we can be price uh, margin and price competitive. But at least for now, we're starting at price competitive and we're confident as we as we grow, we'll get some margin too. Yeah. So you feel like we don't really, you know, and I think I love that example of McDonald's in the sense that it shows you how uh, you you change the system from within without necessarily waiting for a perfect scenario to emerge. Oh, yeah. Right? You can't wait for the government to do. <laughs> I mean, like, it'd be nice if they did, but I, I'm certainly not pinning my hopes on that. And, and I actually believe the marketplace will cover a lot of this. The, the growth rate that's happening for plant-based foods is so fast that um, I've always felt we need to be able to do this without government support. If the government gets involved, that's great. Maybe that's a plus, but we shouldn't um, let our efforts hinge on that. That's true. Yeah. It's not something that if it does happen in parallel, I think it'll probably be because of the market needs for it rather than uh, because of some uh, of the, because the, the theory around why it needs to happen has been true for a while, except there's been no willingness to do it. Right. So that isn't really going to change until something truly changes in the marketplace and consumers demand different things. So, um, I have a question on, uh, not to jump back to tech, but I, I, I didn't ask you this while we were discussing technology. What are your thoughts on 
the efforts to develop meat from uh, cells or cultured meat or cell yeah, yeah i have no problem with it i understand it i don't know that i would consume it myself but it, um i understand why that's a a funded enterprise um and and i uh, i'm not yet convinced it can be done at a scaled level at a price point that makes it accessible um i also believe there are still some health shortcomings of the animal based product and i'll be curious to see if they can address that the other one part is i'll be curious to see if they can address the full taste so we know um they can replicate you know muscle tissue and i've heard they can replicate fat tissue but the magic of meat is that stitching the interlacing of the fat and the and the muscle and um that's something obviously we've been spending quite a bit of time at at companies like beyond meat so um i wonder if if let's say those guys are at least 3 years away from launch commercializing a cell based meat i'm confident that 3 years from now beyond meat will be even further uh down the road in terms of improving the taste texture nutritional profile of our product uh, i mean you look at what's happened in just the past 3 years you know the, the beyond burger was only introduced in 2016 so so much has happened uh and and of course we're bringing out what we've already announced a 3.0 version of the burger which has less saturated fat mm-hmm. so as we keep improving um our product I uh am increasingly less worried about the competitive threat of what those folks are doing but I I have no <laughs> ill wishes I don't I don't view them as competitors uh, I view them as um working perhaps in a with some of the same aspirations yeah um you mentioned the beyond burger 3.0 and I and I I I thought we were done with beyond but I'm we're back to it now that's and fine you, it's all the <laughs> conversation yeah. so um I do I did have a question that I wanted to ask you about um your efforts to reduce the sodium and saturated fat content more from a standpoint of firstly why are you doing it and um what's sort of driving those decisions and what is the end do you see a scenario where you're going to have multiple products lines some with the full fat full sodium version and some that are the leaner beef version of it mm-hmm. or do you just see it this being the natural evolution as your 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 ability to to create better forms of plant based meat you will just make them more nutritionally superior to the extent it's possible because you need fat in a burger so that's yeah. never going away <laughs> of course no it's it's a continuous improvement and and that mindset has to be uh, first of all taste has to come first we have to taste as good or better than the meat analog the animal based analog we're uh, replicating but uh what's not so exciting about what we're doing is that we know our competition you know which in this case would be the animal based product is static you know cows are <laughs> they're not going to evolve dramatically differently so we know exactly what we're aiming for and then we know we can continue to improve on it we can improve on taste nutritional profile uh, and then of course cost as well and so what i'm excited about as i look to the future and i i believe this will happen within it's really a matter of years where okay we we know the environmental advantage is dramatic that's not even a you know you can't even put them on the same chart we know the nutritional um comparison um is is quite comparable um some advantages um some areas we can still improve um and then the taste is in many cases as good or you know has the potential to be better uh 
And so you get to a place where not too far from now, someone's going to say, well, if it's better for the environment, better for my health, um, tastes great on a burger or, or how, whatever the application and has a cost advantage, then you flip it. Rather than people saying, have you, you know, why would, why would, why do you want to eat plant-based? Someone would say, well, why wouldn't you want to eat plant-based? Why do you feel the need to kill a, a sentient being to satisfy your diet if, if you don't need to? Uh, and, and I don't think that is, we're that far away from that. So, so it's really exciting and inspirational to think about where we can be within our lifetimes on this. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that answer. Um, and I know because some in the press have suggested that the efforts to make the products nutritionally superior by reducing sodium or, or saturated fat are, are going to actually negatively impact sales. And my response has been, why would you make a decision that's negatively <laughs> impacting sales? In fact, yeah. my, my assumption was, and I think you've just confirmed it, is that if you could make a great tasting product that's just same or better than meat, but make it even more tr nutritionally superior, why wouldn't you do it? Yeah, yeah, no, that I can confirm having just had a delicious 3.0 burger uh, <laughs> last week, it's, it's there. And so, yeah, when you have that knowledge and the capability, of course you, you do it and, and you keep going and you don't stop. And, and, and so, you know, one thing I really appreciate because um, consumers who've been, who may have tasted that Beyond Burger back in 2016, you know, it's, uh, if we went back and tasted it now, we'd, we'd be embarrassed. It's, you know, the smell was off, the texture wasn't there, the color, but you look, we were all, we've all been on this journey together. And so we'll just keep, keep, you know, keep improving, keep elevating, keep going beyond where we are. Yeah. I, um, I remember the beast burger, so that's even, before yeah. the <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, and I, and I remember, remember being at the launch party in New York for the beyond burger and, and Ethan and others were seeking feedback on the, on the taste, which was, which was quite good. And he said, you wait till you try the next one. And that's, that's it. It's been that's true it. since then. Um, I think you'll like this question, which is because you seem like someone who's always looking, uh, to find more things to do when you already have a pretty full <laughs> plate. Um, and it's pretty clear it comes from a place of wanting to, um, to create, to solve problems. Um, you can't possibly be a pessimist if that's where you put your energy. So I guess my question is, is a pretty simple one. What gives you the most hope? What drives mm. you to do these things uh, that sometimes may have pretty long time horizons still yeah. turn into something big? For me, the response we see is what gives me the hope. You know, when we bring out these products and going back to Honest Kids and Honest Tea to see people accept them and, and have, be excited about them and to feel like they're making an impact on their diet. And then at the same time, to see the impact, what our supply chain choices have, whether it means organic farms, you know, being able to flourish, organic farmers being able to flourish, um, seeing how we can help play a role in, in capturing and harnessing some environmental waste that would otherwise, you know, could have a negative impact on the, on the landscape. All of those things um, for me are the kind of impact I would hope to have. And, and you know, I, I actually went to business school thinking I was gonna be working in the nonprofit sector because of that mission orientation being so strong. And so for me, whenever I can feel like my work is furthering the missions, the causes I care about, that that's what I get excited about. And, and um, as I said, I don't think there's ever been as hopeful a moment 
or as um, dynamic a moment in the food business where there's just so much opportunity, so much change happening, consumers questioning or re-examining what the choices they're making. Um, so this is, this is the time to strike. This is the time to, to, to make impact happen. Yeah. And what do you think the, the food system is going to look like uh, by the year 2050? And I give that yeah. year for the reason that it's either going to be all the work we're putting in right now is going to result in something amazing or it's going to be yeah. business as usual and we we'll all have yeah. failed. <laughs> no, it's a great, it's actually a great time frame. So I think one of the fascinating things is, is that children growing up in 2050 will be talking to us. I hope you and I are still around, but, uh, you know, they're talking to people saying, did people of my grandparents' generation actually really have a diet where the main core part of the, the diet was based on a system of um, killing uh, billions of sentient creatures. That was the, you know, um, that was the basis of their diet. I, I can't believe they, they live like that. How is that? It's, and the reason that will be so hard for them to understand is because plant-based will be so prevalent, so excellent in taste, so affordable in its cost that they just can't imagine there was a this antiquated um, barbaric system upon which the food system was based. And you're creating that future. So thank you, right. Seth Goldman. I really <laughs> sure. appreciate you being on today. And good luck with all the new work with Eat the Change. And I look forward to chatting with you again very soon. Thank you. Well, hopefully we'll be seeing more Eat the Change out of the market. And we'll be seeing more Eat the Change transformations happening with consumers as well. Thanks, Seth. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nils Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and rate and review it. To learn more about this podcast or my work, go to eftp.co. That's eftp.co. Thank you for listening.